First Peter chapter 2 from verse 18 to verse 25. Okay, if I um, uh, begin this morning, this morning's sermon, simply reminding you of this, that the first word of the section of Scripture there, what's it? Servants. If I remind you, I start by reminding you that that word could equally be translated slaves, what happens? I think we could all in this room be struck by how relevant, immediately relevant, this portion of Scripture is for us in the society that we live. Think about that for a moment, please. So we come to a portion of Scripture written to thinking about slaves just at a time where statues of slave traders are being toppled in Bristol. We come portion about slaves just as slave factories in Leicester have been discovered. It seems a truly pertinent and relevant thing, does it not, for the focus and the theme to be about slaves? Well, that might be true, might be true, but perhaps not in the way that we think. See, as we start out this morning, what I think we've got to do is we've got to do what I I counseled against us doing last week. And I think we've got to begin by considering what the biblical text does not say. Because I think we all know that sort of common criticism of the Bible, don't we? Everyone knows the criticism that nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the New Testament is slavery condemned. We hear that criticism a lot. So let's start out here. We maybe need to ask, well, why not? Do you see? Like, Peter, you're writing to slaves. You're talking about slavery. Why, at this point, do you not take the opportunity to condemn the institution of slavery, right? Well, there's a lot of answers uh, that we could give to why Peter doesn't condemn slavery. Let me just mention a couple very briefly, okay? First of all, he doesn't condemn slavery here simply because the apostle has different priorities in view. Like, you, you know what our society wants from the Bible in a way? Our society wants the authors of the New Testament to be sort of transformationalists. Like, our society wants these New Testament authors to speak for the reordering of the structures of society. But what do you know as a Christian? That isn't the number one priority for the New Testament authors, is it? Rather than these men speaking out for the re-shaping of the order of society, their number one concern is for the reshaping of people's hearts before God, isn't it? So you can see what Peter does. Rather than here speak out against the institution of slavery, what does he do? He actually teaches Christians how to live under slavery. Why? So that other people might look at these people, might be amazed, might be one for Christ, and God might receive the glory. So his priorities are not the priorities we might want or that society has. Let me give you another reason why he doesn't speak out against slavery. And I think it's really important. You see, the idea of slavery is not the same idea that you're thinking of and that I'm thinking about just now. Because you have to and I have to be very acutely aware of the baggage that we have when we come to this idea or this word slavery. I speak to you about slavery or you speak to me about slavery. What happens? We are always informed by the transatlantic slave trade, aren't we? Isn't that what we think about when we think about slavery? 
We come to this with this, all of this bags of presuppositions about that historic situation, largely in the States, 18th and 19th centuries. That's what we think about. That's what colors our understanding of this topic. And doesn't it make so much more sense that Peter doesn't speak out about slavery here when we realize that the situation in the first century world bore very little resemblance to the transatlantic slave trade? Do you see it? Like the situation in the Greco-Roman world, that slavery was not based on race. Doesn't that change the game? Wasn't based on race. And to be honest, it wasn't an entirely bleak picture. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, to be a slave in the first century world wasn't great. You were still somebody else's property. But did you know these truths? That a slave in the first century could own a lovely big house. A slave in the first century could be an accountant. You know, they could be a doctor and still be technically a slave. They could own their own servants and slaves. Did you know that they could also buy themselves out of slavery if they decided that was economically best for them? See, it bears no resemblance or very little resemblance to what we think of as slavery. And that might sound good, but it leaves me and you right now with a problem. (laughs) Do you see what it is? We start out saying, oh, it's about slaves and slavery. Could this be any more relevant? Do you see the problem? Now we're left asking, is there any relevance to this at all? I mean, after all, there's no such thing as household slaves today in the same sense as there was in the first century world. There's no slaves. Is this relevant? Or should you and I just skip this section about slavery and move on in First Peter? No, we shouldn't. I'll show you why. Look with me to the end of verses 18 and 19. End of verses 18 and 19. Here, look at the words unjust. Do you see the repetition here? So here Peter is concerned to teach Christians, listen, how to deal with unjust treatment at the hands of an employer. I'll say it again. This section of scripture, Peter's trying to teach Christians, is teaching Christians how to deal with unjust treatment at the hands of a corrupt employer. And surely as soon as I say that and we linger on that, we see how applicable that is to many of us in here, how it has been applicable, is and will be applicable. Do you see, friends, this is immensely relevant to London City Presbyterian Church, but just not in the way we first thought. Okay. Now, here's the deal. In this section of scripture, Peter is going to give us three ways that we can endure unjust suffering. Three ways in which we can endure unjust suffering. So, if the folks back home, I hope, have got scripture in front of them, we're ready. We'll consider the first of those. Um, The first is that we consider God. So, to endure unjust suffering, we consider God. Now, if society compiled a list of the top, let's say, 50, what they thought were the most controversial portions of Scripture in the New Testament, you know, the top 50 portions of Scripture that really riles up the unbeliever, I'm reckoning that this present chapter is going to make the top five the most controversial. Don't you agree last week, if you were here or you heard it, we looked at the idea of submitting to 
authorities. That's incredibly controversial for the person outside the church. Next time round, we can all look for, look at the first words of chapter three. Likewise, wives. So next time we can look forward to the idea of submission in the home. Okay, so I'll come with a, a bulletproof vest. Uh, for for next time around. Well, if we're going to understand this portion of Scripture here, we've got to appreciate this is smack bang in the middle of that theme about submission. So I want, if you didn't hear it, I want to make this, I'm going to repeat myself and make it clear. Here is Peter's primary theme. I'll read it. Primary theme, that though there are exceptions, what's he teaching you here? That you are called to, to be subject to, listen, you are called to patiently endure suffering at the hands of your corrupt supervisor, your corrupt boss, your corrupt master. Now, what did I not say? I didn't say that you and I are called to be complicit with their corruption. There's a distinction there, isn't there? We're not to go along with what is breaking God's law, but Peter very much is telling us here we are to be subject to humble before those over us in employment. Now, I think this is incredibly troubling for many people, for many of us. Immediately, we're desperate for help. How do we endure patiently suffering in the workplace? And we ask Peter, what do you say? Well, do you know those those uh, hand-held, uh, almost sort of microscopes that jewelers use? I should have looked up what they were called. They're loops or something like that. You know, the little uh, magnification devices that they use to stare at fine jewels. I think we need, to understand this, I think we need one of them. Because we will only appreciate the value of Peter's point here, the true worth of his point. If we take a couple of little gems from the text, we hold it up to the light and inspect it. Okay? So a couple of little gems here. first one is at the beginning of verse 18. So you look there, and I'm going to ask you this. Read the opening of verse 18, and what do you think Peter is saying? Who do you think he has in view? I'll give you a second to find it, to see it. What does he say? Servants or slaves, be subject to your masters. What's the next bit? With all respect. What do you think he's saying there? If you're anything like I was when I first read that, you think it's the master that's in view. And it's the idea that, that it's a call for comprehensive submission, isn't it? You know, the idea, oh, you be submissive with all, like, with all r- respect. Is that how you read in that verse, that phrase? I don't think that's what it is at all. See, listen, the word that Peter uses in the Greek is the word phobos or fear. So servants be subject to your masters with all fear. And what do we know about the use of fear in the epistle of 1 Peter? We know, we know he uses it loads, right? We're only in chapter 2. And how many times has Peter talked about fear? But we should also know that Peter only ever uses fear in relation to God. See, he says time and time and time again, he says, live in fear before God. Fear God. Even later on, he's going to tell us, don't fear man. So do you see part of this? The part of the first help is that you and I should view injustice, but we should view that injustice in the workplace in reference to God, conscious of God. You following me? 
So you see, our attitude to the corrupt boss must be informed by our wonderful relation relationship we have with God. If you don't see it, verse 19 sums up the idea. How do we cope? Be mindful of God. Or Colossians 3.22 speaks to servants, says be submissive, and then says do so fearing God in all things. So you're with me? So part of this idea is that we should, how do we cope? We, we look to God. We consider, we're mindful of God in that difficult circumstance. But what do we see back to Peter? I said this back to Peter in, in sermon preparation. What is it about God? What exactly is it about his character that helps us and that we should consider? Well, pick up your little magnification device and look this time at the beginning of verse 19. And I think I've just got to address one of the problems with this situation here uh, this morning. Um, the reality is that it's slightly different, isn't it? That we have not got the same copies of scripture in front of us. We don't, we're not able to give out copies of the Bible. And just by the nature of that, lots of us in here have got different copies of different translations of scripture in front of us, right? It's bound to be the way if we're going online to get it. And the people at home, you know what it's like, you know, if you've watched any of these videos, you grab whatever Bible is closest to you and, you know, King James, NIV, oh, and are fine. But we've got to be careful here, because how does, in your translation that you've got, how does verse 19 begin? Do you see it? Some of you may have the idea that enduring unjust suffering is laudable or praiseworthy. Like the NIV, which I know that some of you are using right now, the NIV says this, that it is a commendable thing to endure unjust suffering. Now, that's fine, you know, and it maybe means that. And certainly that's true in the sight of God, that in the name of Jesus Christ we enjoy. But I really don't think that that's what Peter's saying at all. He's saying something much more exciting and much better. Because the Greek word there is the word charis. Everyone knows that. What's that? It's grace. We also know that's almost a technical term in the New Testament for what? For the undeserved favor that God showers on his people on the Lord Jesus Christ. So does everyone pick up what I'm saying? Rather than Peter saying, it is commendable if you endure suffering, Peter's promising his people, God's people, help that because unjust suffering in the name of Jesus Christ is so an intrinsic part of the Christian walk, he the first Peter, God is saying, I will help you. In times like this, in situations when you are being mistreated, I will pour out special favor. I will help you. And if you don't see it, I'll just read you what Peter is just about to say later on in the letter. He says, if you are vilified, you're blessed, for the Spirit of God will rest in you. So let me make it personal. I don't want to embarrass people, but I do want to ask you, is this right where you are? You know, unjust demands, unfair demands in the workplace, corrupt people over you and you're struggling. Then you ought to listen to Peter. And the first place you ought to go is to the Lord God. And right in the middle of that, that mistreatment and abuse, you fill your mind with God. You, you go to God, you bow to him. 
Because you have a God who promises you mercy, and you have a God who promises you grace. So we should first consider God. Second of all, we should follow Jesus. We should follow Jesus. So I've said I've said this section, this whole chapter indeed, if you look at it with pagan eyes, then it's controversial. Submission is controversial. I want to suggest here that it is also, especially this section, is incredibly divergent from uh, many of the themes in contemporary Christianity. Although whether it's Christianity uh, is a very debatable indeed. I'll tell you what I mean. So this Sunday, I don't know the date because I'm hopeless with dates, but this Sunday last year, the equivalent Sunday, Catherine and myself, I think I'm right with the dates, terrible with dates, but we were in France and we were on holiday and we walked into an evangelical church, it announced itself to be. In reality, this was a prosperity type, prosperity, health and wealth type uh, church and so you can picture the scene, um, Catherine trying to keep her husband calm as we hear from the minister that God wants ultimately our present material prosperity. And if I will only believe a little bit more, then I will be rich, super rich, which has not happened. My faith must be on the wane. Now you think about that's a common theme right in our city just now. You'll hear that so often. But you compare it with what Peter says here, what he goes on to say in verse 21. Have a look. So he tells us not that we have been called, effectually called by God to a life of health and wealth. But what does he tell us? That it is to this, to patient, a life of patiently enduring suffering, it is to that the Christian has been called. So we could, and we maybe ought to, note at least the divergence from so much sort of contemporary Christianity. Instead, I won't ask the question or answer the question, why is it like that? Like, are you born again this morning? Then you, your future is amazing. Like, you're going to see Jesus as he is. You're going to new heavens and new earth. You're going to meet with your God. But why is the road there so tough? Why is the road to that filled with unjust suffering? We're given the answer in verse 21. It's because this Christian life, in this life, we are following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are following in the footsteps through suffering, the footsteps of Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm hoping by this stage... Everyone in the room and everyone at home has worked out why we put the pieces of the service this morning the way put it together the way we did. Has everyone worked out why we read? Come on, you must have worked out by now why we read Isaiah 53 earlier on, the suffering servant. It's because Peter here, what does he do? But he quotes Isaiah 53, must have got that. That's why I read them back to back. He quotes Isaiah 53. But if you picked up on that, do you not see how ingenious Peter is? Like, do you not see how clever he is? Because what he doesn't quote a huge big chunk of Isaiah 53, does he? 
He doesn't do that. He doesn't go at like huge length. What does he do? Do you notice what he does? He selectively chooses certain parts of Isaiah 53 in order to bring out particular elements of the example that Jesus sets for us. Does everyone hear that? Like we are supposed to follow Jesus' example in everything. But what does Peter do? Peter highlights certain areas of that example, certain areas and parts of Jesus' example that will help us, especially in unjust suffering. I don't know about you. I want to know what they are. Elements of Jesus' example that's going to help us. So look at them. Let's do this. If if you've got scripture there, look at verses 22 and verse 23. Have a look at it. I'll not read it all. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it in a silly way, if you allow. I'm I'm going to read it to try and bring out the theme, the point that Peter's making, the element of Jesus' example. Let's read it. So, he committed no sin... Neither was deceit found where? In his mouth. When he was reviled or spoken wickedly against, he did not revile. He did not speak wickedly in return. What does, in return, when he suffered, what's the next bit? He did not speak in a threatening way. You're with me. Aren't you? Like, what is this element of Jesus' example? It is his example of speech through suffering that Peter's talking about. And I reckon if any of you in the room have ever had a tough time with a supervisor or a boss, you know exactly why Peter has taken Jesus' example of speech and put it right before us today. You get it, don't you? What are we tempted to do when we are mistreated at work? We are tempted to speak out a turn all the time. I can take so many different forms, can't it? You're struggling with your supervisor, you're struggling with your boss, what do you do? There's the temptation to speak back at them! Launch a verbal tirade at them, right? To rebel. Then there's almost a worse temptation. There's the temptation to speak ill of them behind their back. Isn't that right? And you know what that can be? We can exaggerate their corruption as we retell the circumstances. And what is God saying here? Resist that temptation. So are you right at a point? Are you on the front lines with these things? You've got to hear what Peter's saying. Like you must follow the example of Jesus. You follow the example of the one who before the Sanhedrin, before the high priest, before Pilate, he kept his counsel and he did not speak out of turn. Do you see it? That's one area. But then there's another area of his example. Look at the end of verse 23. The end of verse 23. So we've seen what Jesus doesn't do. But what is the positive example? Do you see? In suffering, he continued entrusting himself. I'll ask you to whom? To him who judges justly. And if you have been in these circumstances where you've been mistreated at work, again, you know why Peter's speaking of this. Isn't it the case that when we're abused and mistreated by a corrupt boss, that we feel helpless? Doesn't that ring true? These people seem to always get off with it. We just are hazard tied. They seem to just get off scot-free. They can treat their staff terribly. They can treat us wickedly. But they just, just 
they're immune to any problems here. And what are we being reminded there? That we as Christians must keep an eternal perspective on our suffering. It might be the case that that boss gets off with it today. This week, your boss might get off with it. One day, the wicked will receive what they are due from the hand of a just God. And so are you going through, are you going through a hard time? Going through difficulties with a supervisor? I reckon the bottom line here is that you must get to know Jesus better. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we are called to follow our Lord's example, we must know what that example is. So I appeal to you this week, go back to First Peter, really study it. Like go back to Isaiah chapter 53 and study it. Study scripture to see more clearly your Savior, the one that you are called to follow, even through injustice. And then um, the last thing, we are to consider God and we are to follow Jesus. But then lastly, we are to look to the cross. Look to the cross. Okay, let me throw the cat amongst the pigeons. Um, I want to suggest that that theme that we've just thought about, so that is that Jesus is an example, that his suffering is an example. I'm I'm going to suggest that that is a theme that is largely ignored in churches like this. I'm going to suggest that certainly in the UK, that reformed churches, we tend to ignore, you very seldom hear a sermon on the idea that the cross is an example for the people of God, the suffering of Jesus as an example. Now, that's wrong, of course, because it's a biblical truth, but maybe if we're feeling generous, we can understand why it's like that. Why don't reformed churches focus on Jesus as an example at the cross? Because we are reacting to liberal forms of Christianity. I hope you follow me, do you? Like for years, for decades, liberal Christianity has said that on the cross, Jesus really didn't accomplish anything. You know, you go into churches in London today, if it's a liberal church or up and down the land, what are you going to hear? You're going to hear that Jesus was a good guy. You know, Jesus was a really sort of righteous kind of guy. You might, if you're lucky, you, you might hear that Jesus is the son of God, but what's the cross about? That church will see the cross is an example for how we should deal with suffering, but that's all that the cross is. And so I want to end. And what I want to do is I want us to turn to Calvary. Here, I want you and I to look at the text, through the text. I want us to see that blood soaked wooden crossbeam at Golgotha. And I want us to see from Peter, from God's word, why that there was an achievement. Now, why that there was more than just an example for you and for me, okay? So, very briefly, look at verse 21. Is it just an example? Consider, look at the language, consider that Jesus' death was also a substitutionary death. Or, do you like that word? Let's go for a vicarious death. Look at the language. Why did he die? He suffered for... You, not 
just an example, but do you understand, don't you? In your place, there at Golgotha, dying the death that you should be set to endure. A substitutionary death. Look, it just gets richer. Look at verse 24. Note that it was an atoning death as well. Look at the language. Now, what do you think of the language? It says, he bore our sin. He carried our bore. What does that mean? Come on, what does it mean? Does it mean that Jesus, like a high priest, he just carried our sin to an altar? He bore it to an altar and left it there? Is that what happens? Look at the language. Do you see how personal it is? He bore this in himself. He bore that sin in his body. Do you see this is not just an example? He was punished. He endured the wrath of God, your iniquity, a cursed death. Then even more, look at verse 25. You know, liberal Christianity saying nothing was achieved. Nothing achieved at the cross. And you read verse 25 and you see it. It was a restorative death. How dare we say nothing was achieved. Through Jesus' redemptive work, you have been brought back to him. You have been restored, returned to the shepherd, your savior and friend. And then the last one. It was an empowering death as well. Because if you've watched these videos in First Peter, and if you were here last week, time and time again, because of the nature of the letter, I've been banging on about purpose clauses. We know the idea, right? Peter says something, but then he tells us why. He gives us the reason why that's happened. Purpose clauses. Do you see what's in your hands? You have a purpose clause about the cross. Here, Peter tells you one of the very reasons that Jesus Christ bore your sin. Do you, do you see it in verse 24? Oh Lord, why did you bear my sin? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Friend, if you are suffering in the workplace with a corrupt, abusive boss, you must See what Christ has done by his redemptive work. What has he done? He has set you free to endure. He has set you free to live and pursue a God-honoring life. You can patiently endure suffering. Christ has secured for you the help of the Holy Spirit of God. How did we start the sermon? Slavery. We started with the most contemporary theme. You switch on any news outlet, it will be filled with talk of slavery. And and rightly so, what a disgusting injustice. But is it not time that you and I saw the cross for what it was? Because having come into this world, why? Not to be served, but to serve the language, to be a slave. And the Lord Jesus, having worked as a slave, consider the feet washing. Off with the outer garments, he washes his disciples' feet. The job of a slave, having done that for you, what did Christ do? He died a death forbidden to an ordinary citizen. He died a death that was not allowed for a Roman citizen. For you, he died the death of a slave. Oh, that we might have that example, but more, that we might be righteous 
that we might be forgiven for our sin, that we all by Christ might be reconciled to a loving, gracious God. Let's bow our head. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we uh, praise you and we thank you that we do not uh, secure a righteous state uh, before you. We, we recognize that that is Christ and Christ all, that he is, we are declared just by his work. That is our status. But Lord God, we pray that you would help us to, to die to sin, live to righteousness. We pray that you would help us to do that in the workplace with our supervisors, our bosses, our masters. We pray that you would give us a submissive spirit. We pray and ask, Lord God, that we would do this mindful of you, following that example of the Lord Jesus Christ and doing it rejoicing in the cross of Christ. We thank you for what you have done for us. May you receive all glory and honor and praise. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.